morning, I want to begin by telling you about a young man, a dreamer, as it happens, who grew up in the northeast of England. Not you, John. It's not you. Uh, Circa AD 400. That rules you out. Uh, His people were Britons, and they, the Britons were one of the Celtic peoples, um, then populating the British Isles. And uh, this young man was from an aristocratic background. He was well-to-do. And his family had, had gone Roman. They'd been Romanized in the time where the Romans were uh, overseeing, or rather overpowering, these lands during the Roman occupation. And so that meant he was a Latin speaker, but he also knew how to speak Welsh, which was the language of the common man and woman. His family had become Christian, and, and his grandfather actually was a priest, and he himself had been baptized, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't really pursuing God in any real way. He was a, a nominal Christian, or you might say a cultural Christian. He loved ridiculing the clergy, and lived, and I quote, toward the wild side. Sounds a bit like my teen years, ridiculing the clergy, in that case my father, and living toward the wild side. But at the age of 16, along with uh, a whole number of men uh, with him, he was captured uh, by a band of pirates and taken to Ireland where he was sold into slavery. He was put to work herding cattle, obviously against his will, and he spent in the coming, in the next six years, actually vast periods of his time alone with the cattle. And many of the people who had been captured with him were these other slaves were Christian, real uh, Christians, not sort of cultural Christians, but people who were pursuing God. And, and over the, the next six years of living with them and seeing their faith, he experienced profound transformation in his life. He experienced primarily two changes. The first of these was that He began to see, as he was out in the wilderness with the cattle in Ireland, he began to see the reality of God in creation. He was overcome by the presence of God in the natural world. You might call it natural revelation. He saw God in in the midst of the world, as many of you I know uh, have and do. And as part of this, he discovered prayer. He said this, I I prayed a number of times each day. More and more the love and fear of God came to me. And faith grew and my spirit was exercised. Until I was praying up to a hundred times every day. And in the night, nearly as often. Okay. What had happened for our young man is that he'd become a real Christian. Not just a cultural Christian. He'd moved into sort of a real and a living faith. And the change in him was obvious to those around him, and it became obvious to his his captors, these pirates who had taken him, or who had sold him on uh, to his slave owners. And the second big change was that in spending time with his Irish captors, he developed an understanding of their lives, of their language, of their culture, and he became connected to them, uh, to their dreams and their desires, not just sort of at an intellectual level, but at a soul level. He began to care for the things that they cared for. He became one of them. He began to love them. He identified with them. 
And he hoped more than anything else that they might be reconciled to God in the same way that he had been. Then one night, after six years in slavery, a voice came to him in a dream announcing the good news of his imminent freedom. The voice said, your ship is ready. And instructed him to wake early the next day and walk to the coast. He did. He walked for several days till he reached the coast. He saw the promised ship and he negotiated his way on board. And he left Ireland a free man. Over the next 25 years or so, he just lived his life. He, he lived a period in Gaul, uh, now France, as a, joined a monastic community. Uh, later, he was ordained a priest and he immersed himself in scripture. He learned to love the Bible. And it became part of him. And then he was served as a priest. <laughs> it's amazing how God does that, by the way. That's my story. Ridiculing the clergy and then becoming one of the ones that I ridiculed for so many years. But one night he had another dream. An angel named Victor approached him in this dream with letters from his former captors in Ireland. And as he read one of the letters, he, I quote, Imagined in that moment that he heard the voice of those very people who were near the wood of Foclut, which is where he had been. And they cried out, as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. So he did. He received this dream as God's call on his life. A call to take the gospel to the people who had enslaved him to the Celtic peoples of Ireland. And he proposed doing just this to his ecclesiastical superiors. And they agreed. He was ordained bishop and appointed to Ireland as the first missionary bishop. His name was Patricius, or to you and me, Patrick, St. Patrick. And his mission to Ireland was unprecedented. It was widely imagined to be entirely impossible Perhaps why they let him go. (laughs) And yet in his 28-year stay to the barbarian Irish Celts, it is estimated that the movement launched by Patrick baptized many thousands of people, probably tens of thousands. That the movement planted at least 55 churches in one province alone and up to 700 churches in total. It is estimated that Patrick ordained as many as 1,000 priests. And that within his lifetime, as many as 30 to 40 of Ireland's 150 tribes became substantially Christian. Social impact, you ask? Well, Patrick was the first public European leader to crusade against slavery. And in his lifetime or soon after, the Irish slave trade ceased. Violent crimes in his lifetime greatly diminished. Patrick, like Daniel, who we've been reading about over these last few weeks, had profound influence on the world around him. He was a change maker. The blessing on his life, his connection to God, didn't stay with him. It flowed out of him. He became a tremendous blessing to the world around him. There are so many connections, aren't there, between his life and Daniel's life. We, we saw that both men underwent a process of education. 
which was intended to lead to assimilation. That word means that they were supposed to become like the culture around them. And yet they were able to resist it. And because of resisting it, they were in fact able to be prepared to transform it. Both of them were captured and taken against their will into an entirely new situation in which they would have to learn to live a completely new way of life in a totally foreign culture. And in that place, they they didn't just survive, but they thrived. And they began to minister, to move in, to witness to, and to transform the wider culture around them. They were in miniature what we believe and hope the church will be in its entirety. Through this series, I've been arguing that the situation we find ourselves in these days as a church is not unlike Daniel, not unlike the situation Patrick found himself in. We're we're not necessarily, as Christians in these days, swimming with the tide, at least we shouldn't be. I've been arguing. that We are called as believers to live a distinctive life that in its distinctiveness and in the hope it uh, holds out to the world offers something profoundly unique, beautiful, transformational, that we're living in exile. We're living in the midst of a society that doesn't support faith. But actually, that presents a profound opportunity for us. It's not something we need to be ashamed of. It's not something we should complain about. It is something that offers us hope. And the hope that we have in these days of exile is the hope that God would wake us up. That God would wake his church up again. And and honestly, my heart's cry is that the church would be the church again. That the church would learn to be the church again. Again, And last week we spoke about how the vision that God has for his church is that we would be blessed to be a blessing. And today I want to ask, how, how do we do that? What is, if you like, heaven's strategy for the church to be just that? And at, surprisingly enough, there is a method in the madness and the method is to look at Daniel, at his life. We read in chapter two that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, Surely one of the great names in biblical literature. If you've got double Z in there, you're doing well. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams in his mind and was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When he came in and stood before the king, when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So here we have a situation, as John has read to us already, in which the king has a dream, and he is troubled by the dream. We didn't, in the, in the text that we read, we didn't get into the uh, particularities of the dream, but we just need to understand right now that the, the king, who has complete authority in his dominion, he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants it, he has a dream and he's troubled. And the situation, that's the situation, that's the crisis, if you like. And if you remember last week, we said there are real similarities between what's happening with Daniel. And in fact, for those that love and have read the story of Scripture, what happened with Joseph? We have the same story, don't we? A a king who, if we're honest, can have a couple of off days now and then, has a dream (laughs) and is wondering what the dream means. And just like the story of Joseph, 
uh, where the Pharaoh has a dream and looks for the interpretation. The king here is looking for an interpretation. He wants wisdom. And in fact, the reason he has this retinue, this cohort, this group of people, wise men and sorcerers and enchanters and astrologers, is so he can get the answer to this kind of question on demand. You know, why bother? Otherwise, yeah, unless you want, this was the days, folks, if you can imagine it before, Google. He couldn't Google the answer, so he had his Google team, uh, entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. No, he had these astrologers who were well-trained in the dark arts, (laughs) and they could help him. But he sets a test unlike usually in these situations. He says, I'm not actually going to tell you the content of the dream. You've got to come up with that too. <laughs> You've got to come up. It's like, ask Alexa. Alexa, what am I thinking? <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Alexa would not respond to that request. She'd have a... <laughs> actually, do it. If you've got Alexa, ask her later. Come back, report back next week. What does she say? She won't have an answer. So these uh, folks are stumped by this Request And the king uh, says, look, you, king goes into a violent rage. It's what we read in the text. And uh, as a result of this violent rage, he threatens each of them and all of them that he will kill them. Now, this crisis brought about by this situation, it affects Daniel and his friends directly because they are part of this group. Like Patrick. They've become part of it. They've become part of that world. You know, as I said, they've not been assimilated, but they're in it. They're of it. They're, they're involved in it. They're, their life and their destiny is connected to the destiny and the life of the people around them. And so this affects them. That's the first part of the situation, the situation that we see before us. And then Daniel, you know, he does this profound thing, you know, with the favor of God in his life, as we heard last week. He he enters into the story himself. He begins to take responsibility for the destiny of the people around him, the same way that Patrick did. And he begins a series of conversations. He hears about this terrible thing that's, <laughs> he goes to the king's official. He says, look, why, why is the king having such a strop? What's going on? Why is the king in such a terrible mood? And the king's executioner tells him, uh, unpacks this story. There's a content here. Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king. Here's the second conversation. Daniel went into the king and asked for time. Always a good thing to do when you're threatened with execution. Ask for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel inserts himself into this story. And in doing that, he's risking his life to enter into this in the way. He's always going to die anyway, but he risks his life by seeking an audience with the king in this way. But he places himself in the middle of this situation. He takes responsibility under God and buys time. And then the third part of this uh, scenario is that there's a revelation. Verse 17 to 19, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And we're going to get to these two things. There's two things here that we see. I'm just going to bookmark them for later. Look at the way he goes to his friends first. Look at then how they respond in prayer. During the night, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel praised the God of heaven. So we see that there's a problem, a situation. We see Daniel enter into conversation, takes responsibility in the midst of it. And then we see God just showing up, offering revelation and insight, which brings about glory to God. The wise men have said to the king, remember, they have said, uh, not, only God alone can reveal this. And Daniel is the one through whom God does reveal. God is glorified. And we see in verse 48 that Daniel and his friends are promoted. It's, if you like, this story is, is what we spoke about last week, isn't it? It is Daniel's blessing being unleashed, being released for the favor of the people, leading to further blessing, actually. In this story, we see Daniel's strategy in action. This is how he goes about being a blessing. He has a way of operating which is risky, but hugely successful. In this story alone, he saves the lives of all the wise men in the kingdom. That's a lot of people. Is it as many as Patrick? We don't know, but it's a similar story. It's a similar picture. What is his strategy? What is the similarity? Well, how could we define it? What does he do? Well, simply put, we could say he's there. That's the first thing, he's there. And he cares. He cares for the people. He's there, he cares. And thirdly, he's faithful to God. And that, are you, remember nothing else? Write that down, remember it. He's there, he cares, and he's faithful to God. That is radical. It's radical. It's so, so radical. It's so simple. When you think of the the ways that we as the church have, have made what pastors, priests, missionaries like to call Mission. How bleeding difficult we've made it. How many complex strategies, events, <laughs> agendas we come up with to just do the simple thing of being there, of caring, and of being faithful to God. There are are a variety of strategies I think that we see as we look at the church through history, ways in which the church has sought to influence the world, ways that I would say we've uh, been misdirected. One of them would be uh, the attempt to be assimilated to culture, to be assimilated. We spoke about this week one. We spoke about how Daniel, in Daniel 1.8 says, you know, Daniel decided, Daniel resolved not to eat the food from the king's table. But assimilation is, is, is the ultimate compromise strategy. It's what the Sadducees did at the time of Jesus. It's, it's the strategy the church has uh, particularly enjoyed since the conversion of Constantine. I spoke about that in week one. 
It's an attempt to share power with the powerful without being a problem to the powerful. It basically says, look, if you share power with us, if you give us a little bit of what you have, we'll keep quiet. We won't live profoundly distinctly. We won't make you feel uncomfortable. We'll assimilate. We're going to look a lot like you. We'll swim with the tide. We'll go with the flow. Just give us a little bit, can you? A little bit of power to share with you. Let us share your platforms, the key moments. Will you come wheel us out? Give us some credibility. It's a fairly desperate strategy. Stanley Halvas, one of my favorite theologians, speaks about this and he says, alas, in leaning over to speak to the modern world, we had fallen in. We had lost the theological resources to resist, lost the resources even to see that there was something worth resisting. And when I said last week that if you haven't understood, if you haven't even felt the tension of exile, if you have never had a conversation with a friend where you've thought, oh, I just feel the tension. I don't think I can walk in that direction. You've never been in your workplace or in uh, your living space, your university, wherever it is that you spend your time. If you've never felt the, sometimes the pain, the, the loss, the isolation and the loneliness, the desperation at times of being a follower of Jesus, then dare I say that you may be walking really close to assimilation. The second strategy the church historically has has enjoyed, (laughs) maybe enjoyed, is withdrawal from the culture. You've seen this, creating a hideaway, a holy huddle. We're going to sort of huddle over here and do our Christian thing. Uh, We see, you know, we'll just keep our children safe as long as they don't watch Harry Potter. They'll be okay. <laughs> uh, failing to see there are problems bigger than Harry Potter. Uh, my, my family, my mother's side of the family grew up in the brethren. Not, not, the, sort of, not the sort of brethren light. The, you know, the concentrated brethren. The closed brethren, they were called. And the brethren were an attempt to stay away from the world. To create... A pocket of the kingdom, a a holy huddle. And that attempt tore my mother's family apart. My grandmother, who actually died in the last week, she was a twin. And when my family were thrown out of the brethren, something I'm extremely proud of, I should say, um, she never saw her twin sister again, over 55 years. This attempt to be holy, you know, this, this strategy takes holiness seriously, and that has to be, that's a positive. But in so doing, it doesn't take a concern for the world, a desire to love and to see redemption in the world sufficiently seriously. And the church becomes distant. You know, if this is the way you operate, you can't be there, and you can't show you care. And Jesus was the man who was there. He was there. He was always there. He was there in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the brokenness. And he was bringing light and hope and love. So withdrawal won't do, but neither will assimilation. The third option is domination. (laughs) Let's win the culture war. Let's do it. The Romans at the time of Patrick, they did it this way. The way Romans did mission, they said, we will dominate them. 
The Roman church operated in this way. They said, we're going to reach them, and the way we reach them is by civilizing them. We'll teach them Latin. That'll work. And once they know Latin, and once they're behaving right, and they're using flushing toilets or whatever else the Romans did, then we'll teach them the gospel. Patrick did it completely differently, but that was, that was the strategy, dominating their culture, subjugating it, crushing it. This is the approach that says, when we've got a president in the White House, or our guy or gal in number 10, then the kingdom will come. And it tends to happen that, in fact, rather than influencing the culture powerfully, the church is led astray. This approach fails to take the gospel seriously. It is ascension, Sunday today. Do we really believe as the church that it's the crucified and resurrected Jesus who's ascended as Lord? Or do we think we need to dominate on his behalf? The ascended Lord is the lamb who was slain. And so this strategy won't do. None of these strategies works. Patrick and Daniel didn't bother with them. I suggest we need to dispense with them too. What do we do instead? We are there, we care, and we're faithful. Or to put it in the language of one thinker, James Davison Hudson, we need to learn to be faithfully present within culture. Patrick turned the Roman missionary strategy on its head. Rather than going to the Celts in Ireland and, and dominating them, teaching them Latin, he drew up alongside them. He learned to speak their language. He connected with their concerns, their desires, their dreams, their hopes. He invested himself in helping them see how their destiny could be revealed and released through a connection to Jesus. And this meant offering something truly radical and something different, something countercultural, something beautiful. It meant offering Jesus. Tim Keller puts it this way Christians do not withdraw from culture. Uh, But they do not compromise and they do not try to dominate. They simply enter every field trying to be salt and light, trying to serve and yet at the same time being true to their Christian faith. They're faithful, which means they stay true to the Bible. But they're present. Isn't that great? Salt and light, he says, sound like anyone you know. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. You see, that's assimilation. If it loses its saltiness, not good for anything. Assimilation, toss it out. Except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what happens in the story of Daniel. God is glorified. The Father in heaven is glorified. Because Daniel is there, because Daniel cares, and because Daniel is faithful. The amazing feature of Daniel and Patrick's lives is that they took the time to come to love and understand the people they've been called to reach. And they took seriously the fact that they've been called to reach them. They looked at those around them and they said, these people, they have 
souls. These people are not a project. They are living souls. And Jesus died for them. And he sent me. They said that he sent me here for them. And this is what we're called to. Just as Patrick was called to walk among the Celts, just as Jesus walked amongst the people in the first century, so we are called to walk among people in whatever place we're called to go, spreading the fragrance of the love and goodness of God wherever we go. So what might this look like for us? A couple of months ago, a student at Trinity was on the prophetic evening that the aforementioned John was hosting with the other Trinity students. And the students were prophesying over each other on Zoom. Holy Spirit has figured Zoom out even though you haven't. (laughs) He's never mute on Zoom when he should be speaking. And some are prophesying for the first time. And and after the call, one student walked into the kitchen of her hall and found some of her housemates reading each other's tea leaves. She saw what was happening and in her spirit immediately felt uncomfortable. She wasn't sure whether to stay or to leave. And so she left the room and, 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 and then she bumped into a neighbor of hers who's also a Christian. And at the time, this person was the only other Christian on the whole block and, and our friend who'd been on the prophetic evening, she had a prophetic word for this student, and she shared it, and and the student was responding in tears, was just overcome. Uh, So she left her there weeping in response, (laughs) hit and run evangelism. (laughs) She then went to her room to pray and asked God what to do about this situation with the tea leaves. She felt God say, go and be the light, and that God would be with her in it. And in that moment, she felt like God, like she could see beyond the surface of why they were reading tea leaves that her friends were looking for answers. And so she walked back into the kitchen. And began to ask why they were doing this and and what it was that they were searching for. And all these people in that moment were taken aback by the question. It made them ask this question themselves. They hadn't even considered that question for themselves. And this led to her sharing with them about prophecy, about how God speaks. And how there was an invitation for each of them to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Our friend shared lots of stories of God speaking to her and to others. And mentioned that this is how God moved. Now one student was there who has since chosen to follow Jesus. And another student in that group is continuing to explore what it means to know and follow Jesus. There are now five Christians in that block. Praise God. Why? Because our friend understood the secret of being faithfully present. She was there. She was there. She was there. She showed up. She was there. She saw around her in her ordinary life the conditions for God to move, to reach her friends. And she decided to step into their lives. And she cared. She wanted more for them than they could have without Jesus. And thirdly, she was faithful. She didn't assimilate She walked in faithfulness. She overcame her fear of the difference between them and sought to ask a simple question that provoked their deeper longing. Imagine a community of people who live in that way. 
I don't know what the numbers of people in this nation who are Christians is. I have no idea. I don't think anybody knows. I tell you this, there are enough that if we all lived in that way, the Spirit of God could do the most extraordinary things in our nation. And it wouldn't take long. You know, people said Patrick's vision was impossible. The mission was impossible. And just look at the fruit. Why? Because Patrick was faithfully present. Where is it that the Spirit of God is saying to you this morning, go and walk among them? Go and walk among them. Servant boy, servant girl, go and walk among them. Is it your neighbors, your workplace, your family? Begins with being faithfully present, being there, showing you care, and being faithful to God.